take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Mark as we continue our series in the book of Mark. This morning's title is Mercy for the Journey. So if you have a Bible, open it up there to the book of Mark. We're going to read the passage this morning, which is only a, a few verses, and then we're going to discover what the Lord is saying, what the Holy Spirit wants us to know in this passage given the greater context. But verses 46 through 52, is going to be our focus today. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible today, uh, and I know some of you use your phones, your Bible app, uh, we also have some print Bibles in the back on the mission table. Uh, right next to the mission box. If you need one, grab one, take it home. It's a New American Standard Version. Uh, sometimes it can be <clears throat> a little difficult to read, uh, but uh, I use it to preach um, and uh, I use it to study because it's a very good word-for-word -word translation. If you're looking for a, a good word-for-word -word translation, uh, it's going to be a good choice for you, but sometimes it can be a little hard to read if you're somebody who likes to read fast. Starting in verse 46, Mark chapter 10. And when they came to Jericho, and as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, arise, he is calling for you. And casting aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbani, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray together. Father, would you open up our eyes to the truth of your word today? We know, Lord, that it has the power to divide. It has the power to pierce our hearts to go within us deeply and to change us. Father, help us to submit to your truth today. And we would ask ourselves if there's any wicked way in us this morning, Lord, that we would be open to you and submitted to you, that you would reveal it to us, that we would continue in our journey of faith to be made into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to approach your word humbly today as a community of believers, to be shaped by it individually, as families, and as a community of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The context for this morning's message and for this story is picking up from where we left off last week. And there was a situation last week where two of Jesus' disciples, do you remember their names? James and John, who asked Jesus a question. They, they, they said, we want you to do for us anything that we ask. Now, if you read that passage without getting to the next passage, the one that we read today, you might wonder, why would they say that? That sounds kind of selfish. For them to say, Jesus, we want you to ask what, to, to, to give us whatever it is we ask of you. 
And if we, when we look at the, the story today, we can see that this is actually something that Jesus did quite often. He would ask people who said, Lord, Savior, Rabbi, I need your help. And he would ask them, what do you, what do you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? And then they would say, I want you to heal my son of his blindness. Or I want you to heal my friend. People were bringing their friends and their loved ones to Jesus to be healed. And so Jesus was doing that a lot. And so James and John, we remember from last week, they're like, well, look, let's give him something more spiritual to do. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And we're not going to give you some petty request about healing, something that has temporal value. We're going to ask you something bigger. Something eternal. Of eternal significance, of spiritual value. We want to be seated at your right hand and at your left. In glory. In the kingdom. We're looking ahead. And Jesus, remember what he said to him. He said, that's not mine to give you. You don't know what you're asking. You're asking the same question a lot of people are asking. But you're asking in terms of... of in the kingdom, and the kingdom, that's relegated to the Father. The Father, I don't even do what I want to do in the here and now. I do everything here and now that the Father tells me to do. That's not mine to give you. That's the Father's to give you. The Son of Man did not even come himself to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life a ransom for many. So they learned something there. And now the Bible tells us that Jesus and his disciples, along with this great crowd of people, are following Jesus through Jericho. They're coming out of Jericho, and they encounter a blind man, a blind beggar, named Bartimaeus. His his name, his, his name is simply Son of Timaeus. Now he probably had another name, but people just knew him as that as Timaeus' son. His life was, was so isolated from other people that people just knew him as Bartimaeus. One time when Jesus is talking to uh, uh, Peter, he calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of, son of John. But at least Jesus knew Simon's name. People don't even, we, we don't even know Bartimaeus' really full name. He's just known as this blind man, son of Timaeus. He's always begging. He's blind. We can't do anything for him. And as people are coming out of the city around Jesus, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He's already told all of his disciples, you need to prepare for this because this is what's going to happen to me. He's warned them three or four times in the exact same language. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over and he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. Over and over and over. And now he's no longer wandering around with his disciples teaching them. Now he's heading for Jerusalem. He is on that, that business. He's, he's going to be crucified. And so as they're coming out of Jericho, they encounter this man. Now Jesus has already been talking at length with his disciples about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And and we learned last week that, that most of them don't understand what he's talking about. When they think kingdom, they're thinking in terms of earthly kingdoms and the way that government works in the here and now. And so they're asking him questions about the kingdom of God. He tells them over and over the time of his betrayal and execution is drawing near. His journey begins to focus on Jerusalem 
the city of David. Now, I want you to see this because I believe that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is setting up a contrast between this event and the event that we just encountered with James and John talking to Jesus about the kingdom of God. He's setting up a contrast between what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God and what the disciples were expecting concerning the kingdom of God. So even now, as they're passing through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, they still don't understand everything about the kingdom of God. But they will. But Jesus wants to teach them something here at this moment in Jericho, and he wants to teach us something here as well. So pay attention. Notice that James and John asked Jesus about when they might be seated next to Jesus in the kingdom in verse 37. We looked at last week. When are we going to be seated? Can we be seated? To be seated is to rest. The work is over. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it says he, what? Sat down at the right hand of the Father. That means the work of atonement and forgiveness and cleansing is over. We are sanctified once for all sins. Amen? Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and because of the work he accomplished on the cross. So James and John are going from thinking in terms of walking with Jesus on this long journey of discipleship to sitting. You ever feel that way in your Christian walk? Or just in your life? I'm ready to sit down. Like right now, I'm ready to sit down. Right? I'm ready to rest. I'm ready to sit down. So they go from talking about walking to sitting. What are we going to sit? And as they go through Jericho, in this very next scene, Jesus' disciples are walking with him through Jericho toward Jerusalem with a great sense of purpose. And when they do that, they pass a blind man who is seated, sitting down beside the road. I don't think he wants to be seated though. And we know this from the very last verse of this passage in verse 52. Immediately what happens after he regains his sight? What does he do? He jumps up and he follows Jesus. He begins following Jesus. I don't think that this man wants to be sitting by the road. I don't think he's looking for a handout at every turn. I think he wants to be part of this crowd even before they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem. He would probably rather be with them, or Jericho, he would probably rather be with them as they're getting to Jericho. And as they're passing through Jericho, he probably wants to be part of that crowd. But he can't. He has to be led everywhere. And no one wants to lead him. No one wants to bother with this man who is blind. And so he catches wind of Jesus being in town. He probably hears about who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, we know this because he addresses him. When people say that Jesus the Nazarene is coming through, what does he call him? When he cries out to him, he doesn't say, Hey, Nazarene, I heard about you. No. He doesn't say that, does he? He calls him Son of David. Rabbani, which is not just rabbi. He calls him son of David. That is that he is acknowledging that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He doesn't want to be seated. He wants to be walking alongside Jesus. But he has so many 
setbacks and so many challenges. Now, the disciples and the crowd don't think that Jesus would have time for this man. You see that in verse 48? Look there in your Bibles at verse 48 what the Bible says. Many were sternly. That's a strong word. Sternly telling him, leave Jesus alone. Be quiet. The king is coming through. He's on his way. He's on this journey. He doesn't have time for this nonsense. Why? Because they think the kingdom of God is marching on towards Jerusalem. And it can't stop. This is what it's all about. It's about the Great Commission. It's about getting to the cross. It's about moving forward. And Jesus teaches the disciples something very important in this passage. And he teaches us something too. Jesus shows them that they are wrong about the kingdom. The kingdom is not so much for those who seek glory to be seated in glory as it is for those who seek mercy. Who recognize who they are in the face of Christ and who say, I need the mercy of God. And he'll be willing to, to chase after it. I believe this blind man heard about Jesus and he knows where Jesus is going. He came into Jericho, he's got to go out. I'm going to sit beside the road and I'm going to wait. The Bible says he heard that the Nazarene was coming. This thing about your senses, they say, that when you lose one or two of your senses, the others become what? They become heightened. I bet this man could hear the whispers in the crowd. He could smell things. He, he knew what was coming, what was going on, even though he couldn't see Jesus face to face. He could sense that Jesus was coming. Jesus is saying, I think, to his disciples and to us, the kingdom is for such as these who seek mercy more than glory. That's exactly what this man is doing. He doesn't want to be seated in glory at this point in his life. He's not thinking about heaven. He's not thinking about his stature among the apostles or disciples. He's not comparing himself to other Christians. He wants to be able to follow Jesus today. Now. Right now. In the moment. And so he cries out for Jesus to show him mercy. James and John, no doubt, as well as the rest of the disciples, were given the unique opportunity to learn something here. Something very important for the life of the disciple. And it's this, that today is not meant for sitting in glory. Today is meant for walking by faith. And yes, there is a peace that passes all understanding that God gives us and when we follow Christ. There is a blessed assurance that we enjoy as Christians and we think about heaven and we think about all the treasure that we have in Christ and we think about the glory that we have in Jesus today. But this peace and assurance, these are not meant to make us so heavenly minded that our hearts become numb to the reality of needing His daily mercies. We need his mercies every day. Do you believe that? The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Why are we told that? Because it's assumed that we will wonder. Are they new every morning? Lord, I, I today have not progressed as well as I thought I would in the faith. 
I have failed. I have sinned again. I have fallen again. Is your mercy here for me today as much as it was yesterday? The answer to that question is yes. It's yes. You need God's mercy every step of the journey. That's the first thing we learn from today's passage. That you need God's mercy every step of the journey of faith. Mercy for the journey. The second thing that we notice is that everyone that you encounter along the way on your journey needs God's mercy. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, do not forget this. Not only that you need mercy every day and that mercy is available for you every day, but that every single person that you encounter on your journey of faith needs the mercy of God. They need God's mercy. People whom God has placed on the roadside of your journey, they need the mercy of Christ today. How do you see them now? Hopefully not the way that many in this crowd and these disciples saw Bartimaeus as an inconvenience. Someone that's just there to cause them trouble as they're heavenward, as they're thinking about the kingdom. They thought of him as an inconvenience, an annoyance. I'll be honest, in my life as a Christian, man, I, I get so determined on my journey and, and, and so focused that I just, there are people in my path, my family, people that I encounter on an everyday basis that I just, I just forget about because I'm so focused on what I think is the end goal. But God reminds me, He reminds us here in His Word that people on every step of our journey need the mercy of God. They are not inconveniences to Jesus. This man was not an inconvenience to Jesus. He was not an annoyance to Jesus. If Jesus had said... I don't have time for you, Bartimaeus. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. It wouldn't have made any sense, would it? Jesus is saying to James and John here, and he reinforces it in this scenario, this is why I'm here. And this is why you're here, Christian. This is why God didn't just beam you up to heaven the moment that you believed. He has work for you to do. There are souls to rescue. There are souls to save. There are people in need of mercy. They're not inconveniences. They're not annoyances. They're not distractions. Keeping you from your life goals or for what God has for you. From achieving your destiny. People are not speed bumps on the road, on your journey of faith. This is the great challenge of the story about blind Bartimaeus. That Jesus does something his disciples were not planning on doing. He stops and he shows mercy to a desperate soul. So we too must be people of mercy. People intent on sharing the gospel. Not just in the way that, that we support missions and we do that as a local church. We support missionaries all around the world. We're partnered with other churches in the state of Arizona. We're part of a network that 
sends church planters, it supports new church plants and church revitalization efforts. Work very closely with those churches. We send money. We support people. But we also must individually and as families stop and show mercy. We must be intent on sharing the gospel. We must not be Christians who seek only to go deeper. We talk about that a lot, don't we? Get in this Bible study. Read the word. Be a person of prayer. Spend time with God. Go deeper in your faith. We must not be Christians who seek to go deeper in our faith and who long more for our heavenly home with each breath we take. These are good things. But we must also grow in the ministry of mercy. We must grow in the ministry of mercy. If we grow deeper in Bible knowledge and in theology and we don't grow in our heart for people who need mercy, we are not the disciples that Jesus wants us to be. We have to learn that from this passage. As we march to glory on this journey, we must also stop along the way. listening to the cries of the lost around us and extend the merciful hand of Jesus by sharing the gospel in word and deed. Do you believe that? This blind man, Bartimaeus, cried out for Jesus to show mercy on him so that he might be able to follow Jesus immediately. What must the people have thought? When Jesus turned his attention, he said, tell him to come here. There might have been some, some Luke Panthers in the audience who thought, great, this is a waste of time. I know, I know Bartimaeus' type. Always looking for a handout. <clears throat> he'll be cured of his blindness and he'll go and do his own thing because that's the way people are. This man jumps up immediately to follow Jesus. There is nothing in this passage to indicate that Bartimaeus had eternity on his mind. The disciples did. We know they had the kingdom on their mind because they said it. Just, maybe just a few moments before this. It was his current condition that drove him to think about his most pressing need in that moment. Sight. He wanted to see. He couldn't see. And because he couldn't see, he couldn't anticipate when Jesus was coming and going like he wanted to. He couldn't, he couldn't know where Jesus was going. He wanted to follow Jesus and he knew that if he could see Jesus, if he could see what was going on, we already know what he believed at least a little bit in his heart because of what he said when he cried out to Jesus. Son of David. There's no indication that he had the kingdom of God where he was going to sit in eternity. What would heaven be like? It was his sight. And I want you to see this. That God has a way of mercy about him in that he will allow and oftentimes appoint affliction on us in life so that our minds and hearts would do what they otherwise might not do. Cry out. God have mercy. 
God, I need you. God, I need you for this right now. You know, it's okay to cry out to God for mercy in your time of physical need. Don't over-spiritualize things. Don't think like these disciples in this crowd and go, he didn't have time for that. He's got his mind on bigger things. God doesn't care about your pain. He doesn't care about your discomfort. He doesn't care about what ails you physically. How unspiritual are you? No, that's... He's the good shepherd. He loves you. He's God in the flesh. He's, acqu- he's one acquainted, Isaiah says, with our griefs. He himself, our griefs, bore our sufferings. He bore. He knows all about it. He's acquainted with your grief. Cry out for mercy. God sometimes allows us and appoints afflictions on us in life so that our minds and hearts would do what they otherwise might not do. Cry out for help. Does the average human being think that he or she needs God's mercy? When we talk about our life as American Christians, we talk a lot about how blessed we are. Sit around the Thanksgiving table and man, we can just name our blessings and oh wow, we're so blessed. Do we think that we need mercy? God's mercy? I'm sure that most of this crowd that's following Jesus out of Jericho and the disciples probably think they're pretty good with God. They don't really need God's mercy at this point. And God appoints blind Bartimaeus beside the road to show them, you need God's mercy. Let me show you what crying out for mercy looks like. Let me show you what unashamed confession and crying out for mercy looks like. The disciples may have also struggled, as the crowd did, with realizing how much they needed God's mercy. But when Bartimaeus cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He did it once. And they said, hush, shh, be quiet. Leave him alone. He says it again, the Bible says, incessantly. The Bible says in verse 48, do you see it there in your, in your text there? But he kept crying out all the more. All the more. He would not be silenced. Over and over again, it must have struck the ears of everyone in the crowd. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Such unrelenting desperation for Jesus to heal and save. Brothers and sisters, when you experience hardships in life, afflictions on your journey of faith, it can be a great grace to you and others. A great grace to your soul and the souls of others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, he says, therefore, when he talks about his afflictions in the ministry. He says, oh, we've, we've been through a lot. And it's been for your sake. He says, we don't lose heart. We don't become discouraged. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. See, Paul talks about the glory, doesn't he? 
He talks about the glory, but he says the glory is, is, is like your retirement and your investment today of affliction and needing God's mercy and confessing your need for God and living that way day by day is producing an eternal weight of value. That word kavod for glory in the Old Testament is quite literally the word for weight. For a precious metal to be very valuable, it has to weigh something. It has to have substance. And Paul is saying this light momentary affliction that gets most of our attention in this life is actually producing such great substance in the hereafter. That even though we have this light momentary affliction, we rejoice in it. Because it reminds us of the mercy of God. Producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to endure physically debilitating illnesses. And if you haven't experienced one, you probably will sometime in your life. Someone close to you will. It's difficult. They make us feel incomplete. They make us feel handicapped. They can make us feel defeated at every turn in our journey of faith. But brothers and sisters, as many faithful people have demonstrated that I've, whose lives I have seen, it's so amazing. These things can also help us depend more on God for strength and mercy. They can increase our appetite for the things of God. If you suffer from illness or physical challenges today, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Take courage. Draw near to Christ. Let your faith in Him be a testimony to others that they might see their great need for the Savior's mercy on their own life. This crowd, these disciples didn't see it right off the bat. But man, when they heard cries for mercy over and over and over from this guy who, whose name nobody really knew. He's just the blind guy. But he's desperate for Jesus. And he cries out for mercy over and over and over again. And Jesus hears his cry and Jesus heals him. And the man jumps up and he follows Jesus Here's the final point from what we just mentioned. Hardship increases your sense of needing God's mercy. It's hard to see that in the moment. And that's why you need other brothers and sisters in the faith in the church to encourage you and walk alongside you. That's why it's so important to have a church family. When I was a kid, we used to play this stupid game. You might, you might remember this game some of you. There were really two games we played in elementary school as young boys to try to prove your manhood. Two biggies. When we got into middle school, it was pencil break. Did anybody play pencil break? You broke each other's pencils. There's, it was a very short generation. There are a few people in that gap. But before then, there were two games to prove your manhood. Even though your voice sounded like this. One of them was arm wrestling. You would challenge another dude 
to arm wrestling or they would challenge you. Like, okay, well, come and arm wrestle me. We'll see. You know, the other one was a game called Mercy. Anybody remember this, this game called Mercy? Okay, horrible game. Because there were cheaters, right? And so what you did is you would challenge some young kid to Mercy, a game of Mercy. You put up your hands. Let's just play Mercy. You put up your hands like this, and they would put up their hands, and then you would interlock them together. And there was no, like, go, right? It was just whoever was first, right? And you would interlock your hands, and then you would struggle to, to cause your strength to buckle theirs, and then you would turn their hands backwards and inside out, and they would be crying for mercy, right? Some people would cheat before you interlock. They'd grab the end of your hand, you know, and a fight would break out. But that's mercy. And nobody wants to cry mercy. It's a sign of defeat. It's humiliating, it was a humiliating thing. And, and then once that person got you, mercy, it's like, ha! And they stand over you. You had to cry, mercy. Debilitating, embarrassing. Not so in the Christian life. Not so in our walk with Jesus. There is no shame in crying mercy. The Bible tells us actually there's great wisdom in it. When you come face to face with the Almighty. God's mercy is our only hope. Our only hope of being saved. It's the only hope of the people in your family and in your community to be saved. God's mercy is our only hope. We must come to that conclusion when we are faced with the holiness of God. Romans 5, 20-21 says, The law came in that the transgression might increase. Do you see that? The law comes to reveal to us that we need mercy. That the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, listen to what the Bible says here, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, as we sang earlier this morning, His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. No, there's no shame in crying to our Savior, mercy. There is only abundant life, free of charge. Do you have it? Is it yours? Do you know Him? Have you cried out to God for mercy? Has there ever been a time in your life, maybe that time is right now, where you recognize your need for Jesus, cry out to Him. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. Do what this man did that so many else and the other people in this crowd didn't think they had the need for. Cry out for mercy. And He will hear you. And He will answer you. And He will forgive you. And you can follow Him. 
give your life to Him.